Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Silverado's own experts, our CEO, Sarah Stewart, and senior director of research and analysis, Andy David, about the report that Silverado has just published on how Russia is adapting to Western sanctions and export control measures and remodeling its trade flows to continue receiving prohibited parts and components necessary for its military and industrial sectors. Welcome to the show, guys. Great to be here. Great. Thanks for having us. All right. So, Sarah, let's begin with you. So what are the big findings in our report? Yeah. So um, I'm actually going to do a little bit of a brief background for our audience today just to kind of set the stage. So, you know, as everyone knows, the global response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been unprecedented in both its scope and its speed. We had 37 countries that banded together in a coalition to impose a set of sanctions and export controls with the specific aim of targeting Russia's financial and energy sectors and from preventing it from acquiring access to Western technology that would support its defense industrial base, of course, and degrade its its military capabilities. Uh, we've also seen a mass exodus of companies uh, from, from Russia, both U.S. and international. And so we know from both official data and the press that these measures have had a pretty significant impact on Russia's capabilities. But they have not yet delivered a death blow, and Russia continues its aggression in the war against Ukraine. So at Silverado, we wanted to take a look at the extent to which the sanctions, the export controls, and the firm exits have had on Russia's ability to procure foreign goods and technologies. We did a deep dive in several areas, which we will get into, including looking at what are the trade trends for dual-use technologies like semiconductors that can be used for civilian and military purposes. And what we found is that Russia has been able to adapt to a lot of these measures and has looked to new trading partners like China, and some new product mixes. So, as you said, we did a very deep dive into the trade flows coming into Russia from various countries. And one of the things we saw that I thought was really interesting is that the pre-war imports and inventories were very high, unusually high when you look at prior years. So, Andy, maybe talk a little bit about what we found looking at not just what happened after February 24th, but in the year before. So in the year before, we saw um, a pretty big increase in Russia's imports. We saw, especially in the fall and the second half of the year, there was a really strong increase in those imports. Now, some of that is just, um, you know, projects that were planned, natural gas infrastructure, um, natural gas tankers, things like that that were planned beforehand. But part of it was also retail goods, consumer goods, um, technology products, And um, certainly there was consumption, there was inflation. But what we saw is that as we get to about January of 2022, Russia had some pretty strong inventory levels for for these products. So um, that certainly set them well up well going into the war. There was a kind of surge in consumption right at the time the war broke out. 
um, that's kind of set them up well to kind of have enough stock to kind of meet those demands and kind of continue to meet demands um, in the initial months of the war as Russia's imports really started to fall off. And, and in particular, we, we actually saw a pretty significant growth in chips and integrated circuits imports in late 2021, right? Yes, there was a huge increase um, in integrated circuit imports, not just uh, not just by value, but also by volume. Um, of course, we don't have exact inventory data, so we don't know exactly what happened to those chips, but it was a pretty pretty significant rise when you compare compare it to prior years. Okay, so that was before the war, and then the war breaks out, and as Sarah said, there's an immediate reaction, imports decline dramatically, but then when you start looking into summer and fall, there is a rebound, right, Andy? Yeah, so as we start going into the summer, um, yeah, there's that huge drop-off, like right after the war started, and then as we go into the late summer, fall, there's a big, big rebound in imports. Um, depends what you compare it to pre-war level and things like that, but they're get, they're getting closer. They're getting close to pre-war um, level for those imports. So there, there's a pretty big big resurgence in their um, ability to acquire and find products on the international market. And one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting in your findings, Andy, is that while Western countries, you in particular, their exports to Russia dropped by almost half when compared year to year, you also have a dramatic spike in the EU imports to some other countries that are now increasing their trade with Russia, namely Belarus and Kazakhstan, Turkey, Armenia, Uzbekistan. So that suggests that there's a lot of transshipment that's taking place where materials are produced by multinational firms that no longer want to export goods directly to Russia, either because of the sanctions or export controls or just voluntary measures to limit their business in in Russia, are now selling their products to countries like Armenia. They're then happily reselling them into Russia. Is that right, Andy? Yes, that's a very good characterization of of what's going on. You see a lot of these products, and it can be anything from a smartphone to a motor vehicle, where um, they're now going from either their production location in Asia or sometimes through Europe and other places, then going into kind of West Central Asia um, and then on to Russia. So, um, and you see that there's been some media reports, you can see that kind of anecdotally going on. And then you can actually very closely see in the trade trends, um, their imports kind of then mirroring their exports to Russia. Um, so it's pretty clear this is going on. It's pretty clear. Um, it's a large, pretty large volume of goods that's moving through these countries um, to Russia. So let's dive into specific products. So chips, obviously there's been a lot of discussion about chips in the media on this podcast about the need for Russia to keep buying chips to drive both their military production as well as their broader industrial economy. Where are we seeing chips now coming from into Russia? So the two main suppliers of chips right now are out of Hong Kong and China. Um, And you can see Hong Kong's um, China supply in kind of a steady stream. Hong Kong's exports have really gone up um, in recent months. So um, you see kind of moving from their production location, probably in China or elsewhere in Asia through Hong Kong and then onto and then onto Russia. And we, we should mention, Sarah, that virtually every chip in the world, regardless of where it's made, has U.S. components in it. Right, it's almost certainly designed with U.S. tools. It uh, what are known as EDA tools. 
it may likely be actually designed by an American company because a lot of design actually takes place in the United States. Even if it's manufactured in places like Taiwan or even China, it is almost certainly manufactured on U.S. equipment from companies like Applied Materials and LAM. So the Commerce Department has something called the Foreign Direct Product Rule that essentially says that even if a product is made overseas, if it's made with a certain amount of U.S. technology, our export controls can still be used to prevent it from being resold to places of concerns like Russia. Right, Sarah? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And semiconductors has been an area of deep focus for U.S. agencies like BIS out of the Commerce Department for the exact reason that you said that these are you know, technologies that whether they are the most advanced chip or a high-powered, you know, commoditized chip, uh, they are fit for many civilian and military purposes. I believe that Putin himself had even talked about uh, the need for, you know, uh, securing these critical parts and technologies. So unsurprisingly, the you know, the U.S. export control efforts have focused on keeping these technologies in particular out of Russia's hands and not just from the perspective of what is made here in the U.S., but also what is being made on U.S. technology anywhere in the world. Uh, So we really should be focused uh, a lot on, uh, you know, where the chips are being exported from, uh, and how we can aid our enforcement agencies in ensuring that those chips aren't getting into the hands of, of the Russian government. Okay, so in addition to chips, we also looked at a variety of consumer goods, smartphones, various appliances, domestic appliances like washing machines and dryers and what have you, as well as passenger vehicles. So Andy, what, what did we find there? So in those areas, we see a pretty big resurgence um, in Russia's imports of those products. Um, when we look at a product like smartphones, um, there's pretty readily available substitutes. Um, I mean, there's a variety of Chinese companies that are making um, smartphones that can easily substitute into the market. They already had around half the the Russian market, market pre-war anyway. Um, so you might not be able to get your kind of Apple iPhone in Russia, but you can get, you know, your equivalent um, uh, Chinese phone, phone in Russia pretty, pretty red- readily. We do see there, again, we see um, the kind of Russia's parallel import schemes where they kind of legalize imports of a product um, regardless of whether the trademark holder allows it to be sold in Russia. So we see a bunch of those phones flowing through um, Central and Western Asia into Russia. But again, there we see pretty readily available substitutes. So you can see how Russia can easily kind of swap out uh, to import it from China. Same thing with washing machines and refrigerators. Uh, we see see pretty readily available substitutes from China, um, so those companies can easily move in. There's also some production in places like Turkey um, and some other countries that can that are not kind of participating in the sanctions that can also feed some of that demand. But certainly the bulk of that is coming in um, from China, Chinese-made products, things like that. You know, I'll Fast tell and- you guys a quick anecdote. I was talking recently to um, an official in in Europe who had a conversation while vacationing in another country with senior people that he found staying at the same hotel from Russia, people from the Duma and various oligarchs and the like. And he started up a conversation during breakfast and was asking them 
well, what's going on with those sanctions and export controls? Is there a significant impact to the economy? How are you coping with this? And, and their response was basically, look, we can get pretty much anything we, we want as long as we pay 20% more. And certainly the, this data suggests that between the transshipments, between what China is producing, that that seems to be the case in many product categories, that Russia is still able to purchase it. Maybe they're paying more. Maybe they're not able to get it in quite the volumes that they've had before. But certainly from a military production standpoint, it seems like we've not been able to curtail a lot of their needs. But the one area where we may have a little bit of a silver lining, Andy, is on vehicle parts, right? In, in that area, we, we, we still find that their supply is constrained. Is that right? Yeah, so definitely on vehicle parts, we definitely find their, their supply is still constrained. Um, certainly, there's been some media, report, media coverage and things like that. They cannot find certain of the parts they were, they were able to get from kind of Western manufacturers before. Um, even if manufacturers were in Russia, many of those were Western manufacturers in Russia building the parts. So they've certainly gone to China, they're talking to Iran, they're talking to India. They're still trying to find uh, some of those more advanced technology products to kind of get into their automobiles. Um, now they are kind of importing kind of what's called complete knockdown kits from China, which is basically a disassembled car and bring it into Russia and assembling it there. But in terms of their being able to build and kind of assemble their own models of cars and things like that, they're certainly not able to find some of those more advanced, um, advanced features right now. So that notwithstanding, there's still a lot to be concerned about in this report. And by the way, I encourage everyone to go read it on Silverado.org. Tons of detail looking at the various trade flows by product, by country, going to Russia that I think a lot of people will find fascinating. But Sarah, one of the things we wanted to do is also look at recommendations of what can we do to actually tighten up this policy that, as you said, was focused on trying to constrain Russia's ability to prosecute this war, limit their ability to produce sophisticated weapons. That is not yet succeeding to the extent that we want to. So what can be done from a policy perspective to tighten things up? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that there's a few a few different options here. And, you know, first, just to acknowledge that there has been a really unprecedented effort here. Um, and so I don't want to marginalize, you know, what our law enforcement and other agencies have been doing both here in the United States and, you know, with our with our key allies and partners. But of course, you know, this is a really challenging situation, and the supply chain networks are global, they're complex and sophisticated, and when you've got actors like Russia, you know, trying to source from countries that are not part of that coalition, there's going to be a real opacity there that's hard to break through. So thinking about what more our, you know, from the U.S. perspective that we could do, um, We've got right now um, a number of agencies that are working in this space, and they've already had some really great coordination. For example, um, the Bureau of Industry Security at the Par Department of Commerce has worked with the Department of Justice and has prosecuted a number of individuals that have been, you know, uh, engaging in illicit trade and other in other actions with Russia. But as we think about you know, some of the challenges that we've discussed today, you know, what more could be done? 
Well, maybe the creation of a joint interagency enforcement task force, thinking about bringing the full weight of the U.S. government to bear as we try and stop Russia from acquiring these types of goods and technologies. So not just the Department of Justice, but bringing in the investigative uh, capacity of the of the FBI, uh, as well as the Department of Homeland Security, in addition to the authorities that the Department of Commerce already has. I think what you would see if, an, if a task force like this was created is being able to leverage the resources, investigative and prosecutorial authorities of many different powerful agencies within the U.S. government. So that's that's uh, one thing that, you know, So ba- could... basically a joint task force, commerce, justice, FBI, DHS, to try to make a, an example out of some of those violators, right, and show that there is considerably more enforcement than people may think in this area. And if you're transshipping goods or exporting to Russia in violation of those sanctions, you, you may be criminally prosecuted by the long reach of U.S. law enforcement, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we I would see this type of task force also coordinating with other agencies as needed. Um, they would be the core, but they would be coordinating with the Department of Treasury that is in charge of, you know, implementing our sanctions including looking at things like secondary sanctions. Uh, when we think about, uh, you know, the, the evasion of, of sanctions by third, by third parties, secondary shank sanctions can be a really important tool in the sense of actually allowing the U.S. government to impose a sanction on a country that is engaging with a country that is sanctioned. So it's one step removed from the primary sanctions that that we've typically seen. So the agency that is responsible for enforcement of export controls is Bureau of Industry and Security at Commerce Department. And Uh last year you, Sarah, interviewed Matt Axelrod. You did an event with him that is available on Silverado's YouTube channel. He's the Assistant Secretary for Export Control Enforcement. So he's the guy in the U.S. government charged with making sure that our export controls are enforced appropriately. Do you think that his agency has enough resources and enough authorities to do the job, or can more be done to beef up their capabilities? Yeah, I think that this is a great question. And, you know, coming from government, there is not one agency who has the full amount of budget and human resources that they need to do the job that they want to do. And BIS is is right in that category. They got a recent boost in funding uh, for 2023, but certainly, you know, more resources, not just in terms of, you know, on the ground, um, you know, attaches around the world, but also people in, you know, Washington. And we need money for them to have greater access to databases and technology uh, that's going to allow them to really, um, you know, enhance their 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 surveillance capabilities here. What what about the responsibility of the private sector? Certainly, if you're a multinational company and you decide either voluntarily or because you're buying by some of these 
government regulations to stop or limit your business in China, and suddenly you see new customers pop up out of nowhere in, in Armenia or Kazakhstan that are buying in bulk and similar amounts that you've had prior purchases in Russia, alarms should be going off for you as well, right? So should the private sector be doing more to look at their exports to countries that are not sanctioned, but that could be used as transshipment points for sanctioned countries? Absolutely. It's in their best interest to do so. Um, A lot of these companies left willingly, left swiftly, and have experienced, you know, economic uh, harm or at least implications from doing so. And then to have some of that market share, um, you know, now uh, being uh, captured by, you know, partner countries like China and Armenia and others, that's really unfair. And it undermines the, the, the reasons why these companies left. So I think in addition to beefing up uh, the coordination and uh, among the interagency in the United States, we need the private sector to really be more engaged and to be providing the government with real-time information about what's happening in the marketplace. The government can only go so far. The private sector is, you know, these are the businesses that are on the ground that are seeing you know, how suppliers are changing and how trade patterns are changing. And there's some real value to setting up a uh, private sector task force that can work really closely with the government, providing these tips and ensuring that the government is able to act swiftly as soon as they learn of some illicit or bad faith actors. Great. And what about the chips themselves? Again, so much attention has been on how chips are in some ways the new oil, perhaps even more critical than oil because at least oil has alternatives, but there's really no alternatives for semiconductors, and they're used in literally every modern technology we have now, whether they're military purpose or or civilian, and there are very broad export control measures on Russia for semiconductor imports, but as uh, Andy's research has shown here, they're still able to import it. So what more can be done to limit Russia's imports of chips? Yeah, I think, you know, as I said, chips are a priority area that we've seen for U.S. enforcement targeting. And, you know, if we're able to, you know, really bring all of the resources together and create a joint task force and bring in the private sector, I would say this is one of the absolute top priority areas of that we should be focused on. And there's a number of reasons why. Uh, You know, number one, we've tried to point out here in our report what's happening in terms of the trends and, you know, what we're seeing. But there is more that can be done to really understand the exact product mix that Russia is importing from non-sanctioned countries like like China, non-sanctioning countries like China. Um, And also to get a better handle on the extent to which Russia is acquiring this technology through other means. We've seen a lot of anecdotal reports about, you know, Russia taking chips out of refrigerators or old computers and the like. This will be really, really difficult to stop from an enforcement perspective. But I think that more can be done to put a put a put a highlight on 
what exactly is is our is Russia looking for and how exactly are they getting it? And then finally, I would say, you know, that this task force can really be looking at whether or not we need expanded export control coverage by the United States or allies to fill any gaps um, and to see whether or not, you know, expanded export controls could really deter Russia from getting access to these technologies. Great. Well, guys, terrific research here. Again, I encourage everyone to take a look at this report on Silverado.org. 40-plus pages of data, analysis, recommendations that uh, we'll be briefing to various policymakers here around town in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. And, um, again, terrific work. Um, Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you.